Cool. How's everyone doing today? Woo! Ready? Ready for another edition of Zurb Soapbox? Awesome. Well, I'd like to welcome you all here. We've got a great uh, crowded room today, uh, and we'll be uh, chatting here with Brayden, who is from Google Ventures, a design partner. Correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. So everyone, give a warm welcome to Brayden. Well, I appreciate you uh, uh, coming down, of making course. the trek from the yeah. city to, uh, to, to sit with us today. And I kind of just want to get into it by kind of going through what it means to, to be a design partner at Google Ventures. I mean, you've obviously led several Google products beforehand, like Gmail, Google Buzz, apps, and on and on and on, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but now you're helping shape a variety of startups and how they approach their products. Mm -hmm. So how would you say your design work has actually changed? Oh, um, in a big way. So Google Ventures is the venture capital arm of Google, and we invest, um, we have 200 or $2 billion under management, and we invest in about 280 companies in mm -hmm. the US, and we're just starting to move to, to Europe. And so we have five designers on our design team, and we're supporting 280 companies today. And that is a lot of companies <laughs> to work with, right? Way more than uh, the amount of engineers I, I had to deal with at, at right. Google. So. Um, my design work has changed in, a, in a, the biggest way. It's moved from um, actually delivering design for teams, like solving a, a problem for a mm -hmm. team. And instead of moved back and thought, how do I help teams understand design? And how do I help those companies get better through design? And um, that's, that's a slightly different thing. Because as a designer, often I just want to solve the problem for them. And the problem is with a, with a company, if they're just chugging along and then you solve the problem, then they're a little bit better, but they're still chugging along. Right. What I would rather do is teach them design and help them hire a design team and teach them culture, like having design culture. Then they'll be chugging along, they'll improve, and they'll just keep improving and improving and improving. And that's the change we want to see. That's what we, that's what we try to do. And, and, and how do you actually do that work? We were talking earlier, and you talk about your sprints. Mm -hmm. what, is, what does that look like for you guys? So once uh, Google says, hey, yeah, we're going to invest in this, this company, mm -hmm. where do you guys come in? How do you guys fit into the grand scheme of that investment? Yeah, so we typically just kind of wander around our portfolio of companies and talk to a bunch of companies about how we might help. A lot of that is sort of office hours. That's what a, a lot of venture companies do. They just like a professor. Yeah, yeah you know, hours, right? chat yeah. for an hour or two and give some advice here or there. Mm -hmm. um, but then occasionally we'll find companies where what they're doing is really interesting. And we think we can make a big impact uh, in, in the way they work, and we, we think we can change their trajectory. Mm -hmm. So for companies like that, we'll do what we call a design sprint, where we'll put some of their team and some of our team in a room together for a week and try to solve a problem. And that typically looks like, well, I think of it a little bit as showing them what design can do, mm -hmm. for, you know, and then getting them hooked on design so that they want to change, so that we can help them change. And to do that, we, we start by setting this deadline. Where we're like, we have this problem, and now we've scheduled users to come in and, and check out the prototype we've, we're going to design and build. They're coming in on Friday. Now we have four days to do it. And that really lights a fire under everyone. <laughs> like, there's no dilly-dallying. There's no kind of fluffy design talk. It's like, we have four days to get this done. Let's go. Uh, and then we lead the team through a typical design process where we work first on unpacking a problem and mm -hmm. figuring out what we know about it. And often designers, it's nice to, to play sort of the, the, the fool sometimes. Like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Why don't you tell me? And you'll find that um, different people on the team know different parts of the problem. Like, oh, I didn't know that customers had this challenge. I thought they had this other challenge. So you'll, you'll, you'll pull that out of a team and help them build some mm -hmm. shared knowledge of the problem and get them talking about the biggest challenges that they have. So think about all the challenges and then narrow down to a couple. 
And then we help them through the second phase of that design process, which is coming up with lots of solutions and narrowing down to one or two that mm -hmm. we think we want to work, quickly prototyping it, and then putting it in front of customers. That's typically what a good design in process looks like. five days. And we do it in five days. Wow. Yeah. And, and can you give an example of like a company that you've worked through that problem and kind of take us through like what was the problem you were unpacking and how did they move with you through that process? Sure. So um, one that comes to mind is Blue Bottle Coffee. Good coffee here. Yeah. Um, they, Not sponsored, by the way. Just, just, no. this is just, this is just this regular is, coffee from the pot. I think this just is just GitHub be sure. coffee. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were moving to sell coffee online. They had, they had some sales online, but they, mm. they wanted to pick it up. And uh, we looked at a bunch of different stuff with them. But one of the challenges were how, how do you merchandise it? And we found that when you, when you look out there in the world, when we do our, our competitive mm. analysis. Everyone merchandises their coffee based on region. You go to websites and it's like, here's Honduras coffee, Ethiopian coffee, you know, Colombian coffee. And you go into to stores and they do the same thing. We go into a Starbucks, a really nice Starbucks with the Clover coffee machine mm -hmm. and everything. They're the same thing. They have a bunch of countries on the wall. I'm curious if anyone here has uh, talked to a barista and had them ask you like two regions, like Colombian or Ethiopian. Has anyone got that question before? OK, like a good number of people here. Who has felt like? They knew how to answer that question. Like they were going to, they were confident they were going to make a good choice there. I see like one person raise their hand in this whole room. <laughs> so like, it's odd. Sometimes you see other people doing a solution, you think it's the right way to go, mm -hmm. um, and until you gather data, you don't really know. So we had a bunch of challenges. Like we had this idea, would that work? We had a bunch of other ideas too. Like maybe we should make it really look like the stores look because the stores are beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, we had other ideas about um, filtering coffee in different ways. But our our biggest idea was. Well, what if we ask someone a different question? What if we ask them, how do you make coffee at home? Because it's a ritual that um, everyone, everyone does all the time. They feel very comfortable in answering it. And it turns out it's one of the things they train their baristas to do in the actual store. So we actually built three different prototypes, put them in front of people kind of as a shopping comparison. Mm -hmm. We just said, we found people who uh, had bought craft coffee recently who shop online. We said, that's good enough, typically. Uh, and then we showed them a New York Times article that Reference a couple different craft coffee things. We created three fake brands, so they weren't like changed by like, oh, I love Intelligentsia or I love Blue right. Bottle. Three fake brands, and we showed them different ways of presenting coffee. And then we learned a lot. Two of them completely failed. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them actually worked well. And that, that asking that question of how you make coffee at home, narrowing down the coffee choices that way, and then talking about very simple flavors helped them pick and feel they had confidence mm. with that choice. So through that process, um, we felt like we could take a big risk, right? Because doing something different than the way everyone else does it is a big risk. Right. And you can't do that without data. And so we were able to kind of isolate that challenge, come up with a bunch of different ways to solve it, and then get them good data within a week. Oh, awesome. And uh, it seems like part of that was just kind of getting into the story of the actual person buying the coffee as opposed to just recommending, like, oh, this has a bold blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, in that project, often when, well, because we work in such tight timeframes, like a week, mm -hmm. we have to spend a lot of time scoping and thinking about what part of the problem do we really want to nail this week. And one of our ways for scoping is to think about the customer journey, like someone's going to come into this website mm -hmm. or hear about this company, then come into the website and then make some, uh, you know, in this case of coffee, looking at a bunch of different products and then to the, to the purchase point. We can just kind of scope in on that story in one little area and then try to solve that well. That actually, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead in my questions because yeah. you've kind of already brought it up a little bit. Um, you you uh, you call yourself a storyteller, yeah. 
you know. And, uh, maybe that's a fad. I don't know. Maybe that's a fad, right? <laughs> the Stephen saying my yeah, thing, yeah. right? The, the the his little rant on that. Yeah. But that. Um, but how do you bring? Because you've written an article on this about story-centered design, mm -hmm. and what exactly is that, and how do you apply that to these uh, companies that you're working with? Obviously, Blue Bottle seems like you've already yeah. applied that, but can you kind of just take us through what that is? Yeah, I, th I think there's two parts of it. One is that as designers, we go on this journey, right? We, we think about the problem and we gather data and we try lots of things and then we come to this point where we're like, we think this is the solution. And then we take that solution out into the world and we say, oh, please, please, someone build the solution, <laughs> commit to this. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. um, one of the best ways to get people to understand why you think that's a great idea is to bring them along on that journey. Right. The easiest way is to have them in the room with you as you're doing all that design work, but failing that, you have to tell the story about how you made all these decisions. Um, when they say, oh, what about this idea? You have to turn it around and say, yeah, we had that thought like three weeks ago. And here's what we found when we, when we like, pushed it in a couple directions or showed it to customers. You have to bring them with you on that journey. And so that's one of the reasons why I think storytelling is important. But honestly, the bigger thing is that um, both designers and engineers kind of have this similar um, way of thinking about products. And it tends to be kind of static. So engineers will often think about the feature or the, you know, here's, here's the thing we're building, it has this code, there's an extent, there's a boundary to it, boom, it goes in there, that's the feature. Mm -hmm. Designers, a lot of our education comes from the visual field. So, mm -hmm. you know, posters mostly. Like most of our design tools are make for making posters, right? Mm -hmm. So when I go and talk to designers, often they'll say, what do you think of this? And they'll show me one screen. I'm like, well, that's interesting. It's, and it's very similar to that feature. There's this, there's this bound and extent to how it works, and there it is. But when you look at how people use products, they, they don't look at the screen or they don't look at the feature. They take this pathway through all your screens and features. And that pathway might hit 24 screens. It might last anywhere between five seconds and two minutes. And then they're mm -hmm. typically out of your product. Right. I mean, depending on what, what the product is. But even session times for Gmail were not that long. People are coming in, they're doing a bunch of stuff, and then they're gone. Mm -hmm. So what you really need to design is that experience and that story and then kind of backfit all of your all of your features and all of your design kind of language and screens to that story. So when we're designing, we often just start with that story, both the overall customer journey to help us scope, mm -hmm. but even when we're sketching, like when I get a bunch of people in the room and we're sketching ideas, if we ask people to just sketch screens, what, what you'll typically get is very different structures. One person will say, it could work this way, and someone else will say, it could work that way, and then you'll fight because there's only one structure you can have in the end. But if you ask people to um, sketch little storyboards, so we do this by um, taking uh, uh, post-it notes and putting three big post-it notes on a sheet of paper and forcing them to tell like a very like boring comic strip, basically three <laughs> frames of a comic strip. And it, it's good too because it lowers the, uh, the stress for people who don't draw all the time, mm -hmm. engineers and product managers and CEOs and stuff. Because they, if they get it wrong on a post-it note, they can just crumple it up and put another <laughs> post-it note down. So you're, you're kind of isolating your, the, the mistakes you might make. But the, the key to it is when people tell a little story, I tell a little story and you tell a little story, often those stories are at different parts of the journey and we can stitch them together much more easily than if you drew what the dashboard should look like and I drew what the dashboard should look like. Now we have to fight. So um, that's, that's how we do it typically. We'll, we'll create these little vignettes and then we'll stitch them together into a bigger story and then we'll build a prototype from that story. Mm. That's what helps us move so fast. Like the, uh, how do you, how do you uh, make your coffee at home example? Exactly. So in that example we had, you know, this, this article that the, someone was going to see first. We kind of storyboard actually the, the customer interview. One of, our, one of our mantras is start at the end. 
Like, if the end is the user study, the only thing that matters is the questions we ask and the experience we put mm -hmm. in front of those users. Now we're going to think about our whole four days based on that, on that point. Mm -hmm. It can be true of, of, a, of a big presentation you have to give or anything else. Uh, it's that moment that, that matters, and everything should funnel into that. Mm -hmm. So our storyboard that we're going to build, going back maybe two steps, is about that user study. Right. Like what are they going to come in? How are we going to get their mind in the sure. right place? And then how are we going to take them to that experience? So like any good... Like any good author, you think of what your ending is or what you're going to go toward. Yeah. I, I, act, I resonate with that, right? As a, as a writer myself, you know, you want to know where you're going to take the person eventually exactly. and what that is. Um, do you find that um, it's hard for companies uh, or s the startups you work for to kind of grok that in terms of design, you know, as you're trying to teach them what design can do, do for them? No, not really. People find it remarkably easy, I think, to, to think about how the customers come in mm -hmm. through their product. They've often never done it before. Mm -hmm. um, and we can point out, you know, the idea is then once you have that journey, then you can look at where the risks are and dive in on those, on those risky parts and design that stuff first. So often it's just enlightening and um, stress-reducing to have it all captured somewhere, to think, oh, there's all these parts of this problem, I don't know. When you see it on how the customer is going to experience it, you're like, oh, whew, it's in one place. Right. Now we can start chipping off parts of it and working on it. And it, it kind of brings me to something that uh, you once said in an interview. Uh, I think of de teaching design as kind of like learning how to ride a bike. I can give advice about riding a bike, but it's not until you get on the bike and try to ride it that you can learn how. So that being said, what is your approach in teaching design to these startups? How do you get them to ride the bike? Well. Um, the way that we bring them in as a team and, and work with them. So we're not, we're a little bit like an agency in that we have a lot of clients, a lot of these companies that we're trying to help. But we don't run away and solve a problem in isolation and come back and deliver it and say, here's this beautiful design, aren't I smart? Instead, <laughs> instead what we try to do is create a working environment together where we, where we put half of, half of us designers and half of them from their company and we lead them through the design process. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, we have a, like, strong rails to keep us on the process, but also we have a wide set of skills in our design team, so we can sort of plug in where they're weak. If they are weak at writing, we can help. If they're weak at front-end development and prototyping, we can help. Mm. If they don't have great visual designers, we can help. So we're just sort of plugging in uh, any skill gaps and keeping them on the rails. Mm. And then at the end of that, they, you know, people expect so much from design. You know, they, they, they often <laughs> think like, it's about color or topography or the logos, the surface level, I want it to look beautiful, right? They don't know what Make to expect pop. from us. <laughs> yeah, um, but when you when you get in there and you solve these problems for their business and you show them how quickly they can learn with the methods of design, that's like getting them on the tri on the on the training wheels and like running behind their bike for a little bit, right? That's like filling all the gaps in with the mm -hmm. process that we've got. You know, we're we're holding them up, uh, and then they can see the exhilaration of great design and like the wind through your hair. Like it's I could see what it would be like if these training wheels were off, right? Um, and then. Once they're hooked on that feeling, then we can talk to them about like, well, what do you need? What does your organization need in order to do it on your own? Sometimes it might be filling those skill gaps, and that's hiring, and we, we can talk to them and help them through mm -hmm. hiring a design team. Sometimes it's about how do you put it together? How do you take this agile engineering team that's really good at building stuff and put, put design on the other end? Or, and or working with it, rather. And, and since, you, since you've already uh, brought it up, that uh, I do want to talk a little bit about um, you founded your guys' uh, design studio and mm -hmm. your team, and you also help these companies kind of build their team. So what does it actually take, in your mind, to build an effective design team? What is that, and what does it look like? 
Well, in order to really be effective, you need to work with the rest of the organization. And that's probably most of it. But let's just focus on the, on the core <laughs> of the team for a moment. Um, when I was building my team, I we had this rule where everyone that, had to everyone that joined had to have a new superpower, basically. <laughs> so we wanted some skill overlap so we understood each other and we could, mm -hmm. we could share and have some common ground. But also, we wanted to expand the set of things we could do. And whether that was user research or writing or visual and brand work or facilitation, like everyone has a different superpower. And that allows us to tackle so many different challenges. And I, th and I think that that diversity is what makes design such an interesting field because so many different granular skills. People have a wide variety of different skills. And when you put together a team that has that wide range, you can, you can tackle amazing things. And the second part is how does that you know, high functioning design team work with the rest of the organization? Mm -hmm. That's, that's tough, I think. Um, the places I've seen it break down most are when um, people don't understand what the other, other people on the team do. Like, mm -hmm. I'm an engineer. I don't understand what design is. Like, I think it's just you know, making stuff look pretty. Or I don't know what you do all day. Um, and honestly, like, communication and trust is, is the thing that ends up making that stuff work, work out the best. And, and how do you actually build that communication and trust? How do you build, like, that overlap between an engineer and a designer, or a designer and a copywriter, or mm -hmm. a designer uh, who is strong in code but isn't as strong uh, in brand and visuals. How do you kind of foster that? Well, some of it I think is just osmosis. Like, I remember there was this team I was working with at Google. They were in New York. They're engineers. I kept presenting design to them, and it was incredibly challenging. Like, they just pushed back on everything that that I came up with, and so I figured, well. It can't hurt to go to New York and sit with them, right? This is, this is going poorly. So I flew, you know, got on a plane and flew to New York. And I, we figured out what I was going to work on that day. And I sat right next to the engineers. And I worked on it. Like I moved stuff around. I like working on this, this flow and trying to make it good. And occasionally, I would ask them for some feedback here or there. You know, and, and it just took me all day to get this flow to a part where I really liked it. Mm -hmm. And when I showed it to the team, they were like, that's great. Let's build it. Whoa, like, <laughs> how did that change? And I think the, the thing was a couple things. One, I got their feedback along the way. But also, they understood I was there working on, like this was not just I whipped it together in 10 minutes and was showing it to them without thinking about it. They understood that this was a tough problem, that I was thinking on it all day, and I was a smart person, and this was probably a pretty good solution. But they didn't have that visibility into me working on the other side of the country. Mm -hmm. I, they just saw someone show up with a couple photos once in a while. I'm like, how hard is that? So some of it's just sitting together. And then I think as you're building a team, having that overlap in skill set is, is really important. So, Everyone talks about designers who can code. It's partly because they're looking for the unicorn. They're like, please, I hope there's one person that will just solve all my problems. <laughs> but I often look for engineers that are interested in design and designers that are interested in product management, product management that's interested in user research. Because when we have that little bit of skill overlap, it helps us do those, those handoffs. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I'm a designer and I have to build something for an engineer, if I know a little bit about engineering, that handoff is going to be much easier. That's true for product management and research and all these other fields. Um, and it helps us respect other fields. Like if I'm, if I know nothing about it, it's easy for me to feel like it's not it's not a big field. You know, it's not hard. But if I've tried, I often realize the depth of that field. Mm -hmm. Like I took a avalanche course last week in avalanche safety. Like you know, I was like, oh yeah, avalanche, snow, whatever. It should be pretty easy. Like you know, three hours into that class with snow guides and snow rangers, I was like, whoa, I know nothing about this. And at the end of this weekend, I'm still going to know nothing about this. Like. Beginning in, a, in an area, I think, helps you understand the depth. Mm -hmm. And that understanding of that depth helps you give, get trust with the other people right. that you work with. It's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's like you have a core skill 
which you're, you're a generalist enough to have empathy and understanding of the other person's job and how that fits into what you're trying to accomplish. Exactly. That's much well. <laughs> nice, nicely put. <laughs> That's my only purpose <laughs> being up here. <laughs> um, and and in, in terms of that, in terms of that, that team, because obviously as a design partner, you've, you've taken a leap into, into a management role. And I'm kind of interested in hearing your take on how you move from being the designer mm -hmm. into a design management role and how does a designer evolve in the role to influence a team of people and their work? Well, I don't really think of myself as a, a manager, really. We, we put together a team of designers as a partnership and decided that we were all mm -hmm. going to lean on each other. And because there's five people there, well, it's a couple things. I just wanted to hire people smarter than me so that I could relax a little bit. Um, and then we all just lean on each other, and five people is small enough that that works. Um, how do you start to take a leadership role in your organization in general? Um, that's, that's a challenge. I often think about it as, as sort of ratcheting up. One of, the, one of the bigger pitfalls I see for teams and individuals, actually, in companies is this peanut butter spread too thin problem. But there's so much design work, and they've only hired one person. And so you try to say yes to all of it, and you do all of it poorly, right? Mm -hmm. And then people think, well, design's obviously not that effective. Look how poorly they're doing on all these problems. And then you never hire anyone else. The workload grows, and it gets worse. And that's the death spiral of, of design. Mm -hmm. The challenge is to say uh, no to things. That's hard when you're an individual. It's even harder when you're a manager, and you've got a team. And you're saying, no, we're not going to tackle this mm -hmm. new project because we can barely do these other things. Or we're going to say no to these other things because the new project is important, mm -hmm. whatever it is. But being able to say no so that you can focus your efforts, really knock the ball out of the park, like really do a great job, that unlocks the growth, right? Because people say, wow, if I could just get that designer on my team, look at all the other things that they've done in these other projects. Mm. Or if I could just get that design team to work on, on my project, look at what they've done in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so by creating scarcity around it, you can often you know, increase the value. It's economics. Right. But it sometimes runs the other way <laughs> if you're not careful. <laughs> and and, and actually, I lost my next question. <laughs> we got so enthralled in the peanut butter story that yeah. I forgot what the next question was. Yeah, economics will do that. <laughs> Scarcity. Um, and and for you guys, how do you how do you guys? You have a portfolio of two hundred something, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. companies, startups. How do you how do you say no, and how do you choose which one you're going to work on, or how do you choose where you're going to devote your time? Um. Well, a couple things. One, we've decided to have sort of a rubric on how we make these decisions. So anytime there's a multivariate decision like this, we try to figure out what are the, what are the factors in making the decision mm -hmm. and then judge each of those factors independently and then kind of come up with a composite. Partly because I don't think our brains are very good at doing that on their own. And addition is, is often a little bit better. So our criteria is around little on investment size. Like mm -hmm. we made a very large investment in Uber. You know, if we get a chance to work with them and they're excited to work with us, that might be a better choice than a very small investment. Um, things around, uh, are we excited and passionate about working on something? Because if you're not passionate about it, you won't be doing your best work. And then there's two other like, important things. One is, are, um, is the company actually excited to work with you? Is it a big problem for them? Are they going to put resources behind it? Or can you affect the trajectory of this company? And the last one, we found ourselves making a bunch of decisions to work on stuff that was making the world a better place. Like, oh, why did we pick this thing? And it turned out that we had that implicit criteria, and then we just mm -hmm. put it into our rubric and said, like, well, apparently we care about that, and that should just be one of our decision processes. Yeah. And, and, and can you tell us a little bit about what you guys did with Uber? I'm kind of curious. We haven't done a whole lot with Uber. They have a great 
design team that's already very mature. So I mean, they're they're good. Like right. they haven't needed us for a bunch of things. We've come in and run a workshop here or there, but haven't done much. Right. Um, the other the other way that that I found helpful working with teams, and this was at big companies and you know within Google, and then also at Google Ventures, is oftentimes I would ask teams all these questions to try to figure out will they build my design work. Like you know you're saying like do you have a front end engineer or you know <laughs> like. Uh, what, how often do you push code live? Or you try to ask right. all these questions to try to get inside that block, black box and understand how it works to try to think like, are you just going to put my design work on the shelf? Or are you really going to do something with it? And nothing I tried, no questions I came up with actually correlated well to whether or not you know, our design work would mesh with the organization, it would, it would change anything. So what, we've, what I've learned to do is to um, use the past as prologue do little bits of projects, see how it works, mm. and then if it works well, invest more and more and more. Right. So You're building trust by doing that as well. You're building trust in absolutely. that they're going to do and go along with you on that journey. And you're, they're building trust in you that you're going to deliver on exactly. what it is you say you're delivering on. So there was this company that um, I just had an office hours with. It was two hours. They were thinking about taking their desktop product to mobile. We thought about it. We thought the, the thing that actually helped them most where they lacked was interaction design. So I said, well, Let's just spend the last two hours of the session just doing the, the flow mm -hmm. on the storyboard, on the whiteboard. And they're like, great, that seems great. So I drew it all out for the next two hours, and we talked about it and figured it out. A month later, they just sent me a message that said, we built it, here it is. <laughs> I want to work with those people again. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, other people, like, you'll, you'll talk and do all this work, and it just won't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what's in that black box, but I know if it's working or not. <laughs> Uh, one, one thing I, I do want to uh, ask you really quick before I, I kind of start pitching it out there. Uh, one thing that you have written on is, is that you're, you're a perfectionist close to launch. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I know some people kind of get like in that, that mindset of everything has to be perfect and others are like, just push it out. And you've written uh, uh, on this. Why is it uh, important to move that button three pixels to the left? Mm -hmm. See what I did there? I, yeah. I got the title in there. Uh, <laughs> I spent all night writing that question uh, to get the title in there. <laughs> uh, but why is it important that details truly matter at that point right before launch? Well, sometimes they matter and sometimes they don't. What I think annoys other people on your team is if you are, you are asking them to push all these little things around and they don't understand why. Mm -hmm. You're like, because it looks good. And they're like, but why is that important? And so it's important to be able to articulate that. Um, and a lot of it comes down to trust in your product and the way customers see your product. If they see that it's sort of slapped together, mm -hmm. they might feel like, um, like the rest of it's, even though the engineering is solid, if the, if the front end is a little sloppy or the colors are not matching or stuff is not aligned, they might assume, if it's, particularly if it's banking or something, like I assume the rest of it is, is built that sloppily and mm -hmm. I don't trust you all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. So being able to articulate why moving this thing matters to the business mm -hmm. is the designer's job. We have to be able to, our, like, Explain why we made all these decisions. That's, yeah. the, I think, the mark of a good designer if you say, oh, why, did, why is that headline there? And they're like, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, like, we talked to customers. These are their biggest issues. So we thought maybe you know, we had three different ways to go about the problem. This is the one we chose. We A-B tested it, and that's the headline. You're like, Whoa, OK. We're not changing the headline. I get it. You understand that. And I think every pixel in the UI, you need to, you know, if, if you're doing really good design work, you need to have great data on why you're making that decision. Nice. Very good. Well, thank you for answering my questions. I know we have a, a very large group here, so I wanted to kind of get it to audience questions because it's a very, very large group. So who wants to ask the first question? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, do we, um, 
bring our companies and our portfolio together to work on stuff. Um, we don't for particular problems, but we often bring them together on themes, like hiring uh, is, a, is a big theme, user research is a big theme. There's all sorts of things where we can, we can help these companies lean on each other. And it turns out that at a startup, designers are often, they feel kind of lonely. Like you're the only designer there. It's hard to get critique on things sometimes. And so just connecting designers within our portfolio has been, um, been really valuable. Part of it is showing the value of design. Um, and implicitly saying no to a lot of other things. So if we, I mean, some of the way I think about it is asking teams to pay, like if you're on the internal team, you can ask teams to pay with their time instead of with money. And that's sort of what we do. We say, we're happy to help you with this project. All you have to do is shut your laptops and put your phones in your pocket and sit with them in a room for a day to work on design. Um, that, that is implicitly saying no to a lot of other things you could be doing in the organization. And it gives you this nice place to actually show how much um, better things can be when design's involved. And after they see that impact, you can often, like, it's often just, it's easy to convince them to say, like, well, do you want to work that way every week? Because if you do, you know, we did these things for you. You know, we fixed, you know, notice you didn't have a front engineer, for example, that could really do great HTML and JavaScript. You probably need to hire that. We can help you. Um, I mean, I worry about a lot of things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you can air them out here. <laughs> I think that, I mean, the brand damage thing is a really, really good point. And for me, like, one of the things I notice is that there's th certain things in this world that are easy to measure, like how many people click this button, right? Super easy to measure. Um, and then there are things that are hard to measure, like what do people think of our brand and how will they impact the company over the next two, three, four years? Um, which one of those are more important? Well, probably the brand stuff is, you know, if you're really into it, is like what people think of your company and whether you have that word of mouth is going to be huge for your company particularly when it relates to press and all these other things. But like how many people sign up on this page, like easy to measure, but may be a little less meaningful. And I think that's some of the challenge, honestly, with UX. You'll say, this is important. And the people on the other end will say, show me how to, you know, I can't measure it. So like, how, how is it important? And I've often tried to explain to people the difference between that. There's, there's latent things that are hard to measure that are important. And then there are also close things. And just because something's hard to measure, doesn't mean it's not important. Um, so you still can't go flying blind, I think. I think you still need some types of data. So what we try to do is gather as much qualitative data as we can about that stuff, whether that's, um, usually it's in the, in the form of one-on-one -on -one interviews with customers. And when it comes down to questions about brand, for example, we'll often put them in that shopping scenario that I talked about with Blue Bottle. And people go through this idea of shopping with lots of different products they use, whether it's like, a to-do app and you're like, I'm shopping between the post-it note in my right hand and this to-do app in my left hand, or whether it's coffee or a number of other things, they're making a decision. And so if you can put customers in that mode where they're like making a decision between a couple different parts, you can see how they react to brand without asking them about brand specifically. So we, use a, we, we try to highlight that qualitative data as, as high as the quantitative data and help make decisions on both of them. Specifications? Um, you know, since the way we work with companies is, is a little bit more on the coaching and guidance side, so I haven't had to get that deep in a long time. And my background's engineering, so I end up building a lot of the things that, that I design on my own. Uh, in general, I found that um, the more closely you work with engineers and the more prototyping that you do, which again will get you working more closely with engineers, the less specifications you have to write. And that tends to make it easier for everyone. Um, so. I don't write a lot of specifications, but sometimes it's helpful. I guess I'm just pragmatic about it. Like if it's working for your team, then go for it. 
If it's not working for your team, let's talk about why and try a bunch of different things. Or if, even if it's just for you, if you're like, I hate doing this. Well, you deserve, you deserve to work in a place that you like. Figure out another way to work. I think it should blend together. I mean, the, the way we think about design sprints working is that in, in the world of like lean and iterative startup stuff, people often talk about that you have an idea, and then you build it, and then you launch it, and you look at your metrics, and then that'll like inform the next way you change your product. And that's, that's the cycle. Like, the way we think about the design sprint is that it's a little shortcut around there. So you can, you can learn a little, you can, sorry, you can design a little bit and make a bit of prototype and show it to customers and get around that cycle of learning without having to launch something which takes a long time and those features you build ratchet in because it's so hard to take features out of a product. That, that large circle is really risky. A little circle is fast and not risky at all. And so the way that we've worked most is like running a little circle, getting confidence, and then running a slightly larger circle and then getting more confidence. And every iteration is becoming more and more real. It's often taking a little bit more time. You're spending more time on the engineering and polish side and less time on the strategy and conceptual side until eventually you have enough confidence that you're like, yes, let's finish up all these bugs and launch it. So yeah, I, I really like going, blending those things together. So it's not like design just drops a solution on the engineering team. That, that misses a lot of opportunity. And they're expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think one of the biggest problems that teams like that have is that they'll, they'll be searching for the unicorn, right? They'll be interviewing a lot of people, and they'll get down to two people that they like. And it's apples and oranges. It's like, wow, this one person has this set of skills, and this other person has this set of skills. What do we care about most? And then you have to make a hard decision about the skills that matter for your company. And you're doing it very deep in your recruiting funnel, which is a problem. It makes much more sense to think very early on about of all the skills that designers have, which ones are the most important for us? So what we usually do is help companies think about those more granular skills. It's, um, it's honestly the thing that I love most about design is we all come from it from different angles and we all have this huge diversity of skills. So just embrace it. Like there are people, so the, the six roughly skills that I work, work with companies on are uh, interaction design, visual design, copywriting, user research, front end development, and product, kind of more design process stuff is that last one. And sometimes we add a couple more skills, but that's roughly the rubric. So we take those skills and we say, what are you good at today? Kind of cross those out. Okay, you don't need those skills. You're good at those. And then what is your business demand? Like if you're a finance app, maybe it needs to look extremely high quality, so visual design is important to you. Um, but if you're building some kind of control automation service for you know, power plants, like maybe it doesn't need to look beautiful. Maybe it just needs to be functionally correct. So there's another set of things that, that is important to you. So you figure out where those holes are in your organization, those more granular uh, skills that you need, and then you kind of build a, a design pipeline on that. Still though, oftentimes people realize they need like six or seven, you know, six of those skills and they still need to hire someone. In those cases, I try to talk to them about a portfolio approach. You're likely going to be hiring two designers over the, two or three designers over the next year or two. Think about like which one of these skills is most important and hire there and then expand out. It's really hard to find unicorns. And the, and the other thing to remind people of is that even if you find the unicorn, like even if you find someone that's good at all that stuff, there's not enough time in the day to do it all well. So you're sort of wasting all of that extra recruiting effort and salary and all that stuff because the person is not going to be like, designing your brand if they're off talking to their users. And they're not going to be talking to users if they're you know, writing front-end code. Just only so much you can do in a day. Yes, all the way to the back again. Um, the idea that they shouldn't go and do something? Like they yeah, is there some momentum we can learn 
Uh huh. Yeah. So you know, sometimes you, you talk to people and they tell you their idea and you think it's dumb, right? Like, oh, that's a. I don't want to do that. I don't think that's going to work at all. And you think either don't do that or do this other thing instead. Um, over time, I've learned a couple things. One is just to be humble. Like sometimes I don't know the answer. They're experts in the field, and maybe it seems like a crazy idea to me, but it might work. And the second is that typically the way I think designers approach this is someone says, I've got an idea to do this. And you go, great, I'm going to talk to some of your customers. You go out and talk to your cus their customers. And you come back and go, turns out you're wrong. Right? Now you're in a fight. Like, I want to do A, and you just told me I can't do A. Let's fight. And for entrepreneurs who are like, relentless, and that's a good thing because they need to build this company, they're really good at ignoring people that tell them that they're wrong. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of have to to survive, right? So they're, they're, and they have a lot of positive signals that what they're doing is right. Like they've been, you know, people have joined their team and they've gotten investment and all this stuff. So I, the way I think about it is, is like capturing that energy and redirecting it. And so that's one of the reasons we actually don't do often, sometimes we do, but we sometimes don't do user research at the beginning of a sprint. Someone will come in with an idea that we think is a little nutty or whatever. We're like, great, let's try it. And you take that idea and very quickly you work with them and put it in front of customers together. And sometimes you can squeeze in an alternate along the way. Uh, and then together you're looking at it and going like, wow. Well, first of all, you've, you've gained some trust because you've helped them um, visualize their idea, which is a superpower design has. They're just kind of going around in their brain abstract and you've made it concrete and they're like, that's amazing. But then together you can put that amazing thing in front of people and if it, doesn't, if it works, then great. You're like, well, it was good that I was humble. If it doesn't work, together you can go, wow, that thing we worked on didn't work. What are we going to do about it? And it's very different than saying you're wrong. And so sometimes I put the user research at the end if we have enough time to do more and more iterations after it. Yeah, um, I think it's very similar to the question about like what's easy to measure and what's hard to measure. Uh, one of the things that I, was, I did at Google was design the Google Checkout button in the, many years ago. And on that project, the PMs were pushing us to, be, um, to make it more clickable. Right? Like there's lots of ways from a design perspective that you can make it more clickable. But it was starting to get a little garish, honestly. <laughs> and I was trying to push back and say, like, oh, OK, like, this thing also needs to res respect our brand as Google. And at one point, my, um, my friend, who was a little bit of a, a renegade, came in with a design. He's like kind of just ran into the meeting, came with a design that had flames shooting out of it and said, free iPod. And then below it said, when you check out with Google. right? So he put that up on the screen, and the PMs were like, no, 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 we can't. That, that's a non-starter. And we said, why? Because I'm sure tons of people will click on it. Right? Like, if all you care about is clicks, this is your solution. Right? This is it. And, and so we made them talk about, like, well, that's not our only goal. We're like, great. What are your other goals? <laughs> and then so we got them to list out these other goals. And some of it was, was you know, Set expectations correctly about what's about to happen in the rest of the checkout process. Respect the Google, you know, present the Google brand in the right way to help build it, and you know, make it like clickable and noticeable in the noise of a checkout process. Okay, great. Now that we have those goals, then we can use a critique process to help us balance them, and we can use A/B testing to also figure out within what we think is acceptable for those other goals, those things that are more qualitative questions. Um, how do we optimize within that within that boundary? I wouldn't always recommend using that technique, but <laughs> some good, there's some good Photoshop flame tutorials if you really, really need it. Yes, we have a question. I don't know. I mean, we haven't actually had that much experience with industrial design and wearables. The closest we got was a robotics project with a company called Savioke, 
they make a hotel delivery robot that remarkably moves through a hotel and rides the elevator and delivers toothbrushes and anything else you forgot to bring <laughs> to, your, to your hotel room, right? Um, and as is the case with a lot of our projects, we're like, well, we don't know what to do, but let's use our standard process and see what happens. Um, and I think because our process is so story-based and narrative-based that that, that experience design part of it like, actually worked pretty well. Um, and it also reminds me that um, designers are like, know how to learn from prototyping. And that's, gonna, that's like a thing that industrial designers and other people, they learn a certain way with prototyping, like self-critique, but they often don't a prototype to learn with customers. Um, and that's something that I think a broader industry can learn from us, or, or put the other way, that we can push more people to do. So we, I was working on um, an architecture project for our, for our office space, and we were working with architects. It was going swimmingly, because like designers and architects, great. And then we got to this point where like, how do we prototype it? And uh, it's like the, the record kind of like needle came off the thing, and they're like, you can't prototype a building. That's hard. Um, <laughs> like, what do, you do, what do you think in software, people? Uh, but what we, decide, what we did is kind of what we do with all of our problems. It's like, well, let's, let's focus in on what questions we have, right? Like, and one of our questions was, we're going to make some of these rooms smaller. Uh, and will that annoy a bunch of people in our office? Will we be okay with these smaller rooms? We had lots of other questions, but that was one of them. So we thought, well, how do we just prototype that? You know, there's lots of things, questions about this building, but can we remove risk there? So we actually went into these conference rooms, and they had eight chairs around the table. We took four of them out, so there's only four chairs left. Took all the other chairs, put them in the center of the office, and kind of like tied them up so no one could get to them, and waited a week to see if anyone screamed. No one complained, so we're like, okay, we can have, we can have smaller meeting rooms. Check, we've removed that risk. So I, and then there was a bunch of other things we tried with putting coffee at different places in the building and seeing if people gravitated towards different spots that would either um, encourage us or, or discourage us from going with a particular floor plan. But I think the idea is often with these more hardware things, people think you can't prototype it. Or with, with buildings, you can't do that in this, in this domain. But often you can if you're very careful about selecting the thing that you're worried about and you know, splitting up the, all the risks into different categories and finding one of the risks and then prototyping around that risk and then moving to the next one. So my hope is that we can, that we can continue to work very similar to the way we've worked if we're careful about that. Great. One last question. Yes. Um, well. First of all, like my graduate education in design is in HCI, which goes back to human factors, which goes back to psychology, basically. Like, so psychology is in many ways like the, the root of everything that we're working on here. It's how humans react to machines and work with other humans through machines. Um, I think that as startups are getting better at understanding um, how to build products, they're getting closer to, they use more and more knowledge about the human brain and psychology. And this is true in you know, B.J. Fogg's trigger action model. It's true in the sort of power of habits thing Charlie Duhigg wrote. Like, there's lots of books out there really about how humans react to systems and the environment around them that is shaping the way that we, that we think of companies. Sometimes for good, you know, in terms of like, well, these are habits we want to change, like I want to run more. And sometimes for not so good, like gambling and, and things like <laughs> slot machines, right? Like, so the people, designers of slot machines know exactly what they're doing, creating false wins and doing all these things to your brain that are like a little scary, right? So you can use that either way. Um, for me, I think the biggest impact that it's had is in facilitation and an understanding on how to work with a team and how to set up a process that helps teams of people work together. And so um, one of the, the big changes that I've, I've noticed when we work with teams over the years is it used to be that everyone was talking, 
Um, and I used to thought it was a good thing. We're, we're collaborating, we're talking. And now I realize that when someone's talking, like in this situation, I'm talking, everyone's listening, that's a lot of wasted brain power. If we had a problem, we could all split it up and work on the problem ourselves with our own brains. And then if we had a merge, we could merge together and find a really good solution. This parallel processing thing. And when you're in a meeting, often the same thing happens. Only one person gets to talk at a time. It's very inefficient. So with facilitation, we're often looking for ways to break the problem apart, like a brainstorm. Everyone brainstorm individually. Pick your top three. Now let's put the top three on the board. That's a much faster way to brainstorm than having everyone just shout out stuff. It's really slow. So when we think about how we structure a design process, whether it's thinking about challenges and solutions or thinking about um, how we get the most efficiency out of the room, we're often thinking about you know, cognition and, and psychology, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Braden. I thank really you. appreciate you coming down all the way to little old Campbell for uh, Zerb Soapbox. Thank you, everyone. Uh, for coming and all the wonderful questions, and we'll we'll see you next time. Thank you.